Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kai Rizal. Thanks for being here today. It is Tuesday, the 5th of December, if you can believe that. Where does the time go? We're talking, uh, well, we have talked Bidenomics on this <laughs> podcast before um, and what all that stands for and means and, and all of that. We're going to talk Maganomics today because the flip side of the coin. Right, because uh, whether folks want to believe it or not, uh, campaign season is we're here. We're in it. We're deep in it. And former President Trump is still the leading GOP candidate. So today we're going to talk about what another Trump presidency could mean for the economy, because he's actually said quite a bit about what he would like to do. So here to make us smart about this is William Howell, a professor of American politics at the University of Chicago. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So when you hear MAGAnomics, what jumps to your mind? Well, uh, first, I love the term. Um, <laughs> but let's, let's uh, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, there, there's sort of two strains of Trump's first term. Um, one was just straight, typical, normal conservative politics, lower taxes, less regulation. But there's this other piece to Trump. Um, and what I think is embedded in this notion of meganomics, which is that Trump is a populist. And that has all kinds of downstream implications for not just what kinds of policies he would advance, but the capacity of the government to attend to social problems and, and the ways in which it would interact with the economy that's worth unpacking. Well, so go ahead and, and do that a little bit and, and kind of lay it out for us because, well, you, you, you give the answer to the question. I'm not going to answer my own question. All right. Well, so I think there are, uh, there are a bunch of things. Look, what uh, a, a big thing that Trump is promising to do, and it's not sort of buried in his speeches, it's right at, it, it's the headline, is he plans to lay waste to what he calls the deep state and to take on the administrative state um, and the federal bureaucracy more broadly. And that's going to have lots of implications for the health and well-being of our economy. Let me just identify uh, a couple and we can we can see where this goes. One is that there are all sorts of regulatory agencies that are doing the work of you know, improving worker safety or attending to uh, the well-being of the, the environment, these kinds of things that are charged with intervening in, in the marketplace and, and targeting uh, specific um, uh, 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 corporations. A world in which that whole, that the administrative state is wholly politicized in ways that Trump promises to do is one where he may well pick, um, pick targets. Um, and so, for instance, uh, no fan of the Washington Post, no fan of Jeff Bezos, he may then decide to go after Amazon um, and to direct the, the activities, the costly activities of the administrative state towards particular um, agency, particular corporations, in the way that he's promising to prosecute political enemies with the um, with the with the Justice Department. So that's that's one important way. Let me throw out one other, and then and then and then we can you know yeah. see what you see what you all think. Um, which is um, there are independent agencies, ostensibly independent agencies like the Fed, which is charged with attending to monetary policy and and a world in which the fed becomes politicized is one where rather than you know adjusting monetary policy in ways that attend to its dual mandate of reducing unemployment and uh, and and keeping interest rates in check, um, it will tie the the policies of the Fed to the the rather than the business cycle, the electoral cycle. and that can be problematic for all kinds of reasons. 
So, you know, a cynical observer of Washington politics might say that both of those things already happen. So if you go back to the first Trump administration, potentially the last, depending on how things go in November, he was regularly air quote targeting companies, uh, calling them out on Twitter, threatening investigations and things like that. And in terms of the politicization, gosh, I can't even say that word. And this is what I do. (laughs) Anyway, um, Many independent government agencies have uh, their leadership appointed by political figures who obviously have political motivations for doing so. So how would this be different in those two things? So, I I mean, you're pointing to something which is really important and may well serve as justification for magonomics to simply do this in a more full-throated way, which is that the regulatory activities of the government have always had a political component to that. Um, They haven't been entirely neutral all the way through in no small part because even independent agencies are embedded in a federal bureaucracy that is beholden to elected officials. And sometimes, as you've pointed out, the people who run those agencies are themselves political appointees. What what Trump is promising to do, though, is to take this to altogether new heights to the extent that there are barriers between that which is meant to be administrative and that which is meant to be political, he's promising to smash through them, to, through Schedule F appointments, vastly reduce the protections that are given to civil service uh, appointees and to dramatically increase the kind of influence that he, as the head of the of the executive branch would wield over the entire administrative state. And so this would just be taking it to dramatically new heights in the service of what? In the service of him, as to use his own language, to uh, be to serve as retribution to the express grievances of all kinds of folks who feel like their government hasn't served them well. Let me put a slightly finer point on what I think is the gist of Kimberly's question. And Kimberly, obviously jump in if you think I'm mischaracterizing. And, and let me also say as a disclaimer here that I'm on the record on this podcast and elsewhere as believing that Trump is a legitimate threat to the republic and the future of American democracy. And and if any of my bosses have a challenge with that, you know my phone number. And if listeners, you have a problem with that, you know where to reach me. But look, here's, here's the point. The reason we got away with, and I put that in air quotes, Trump's first term. The reason we all survived Trump's first term is because he was, in a word, inept. He didn't know where the levers were, of power were. His His lieutenants didn't really know where the levers of power were. There was vestigial resistance within the civil service and within the the existing bureaucracy that knew that some of what he was trying to do was a bad thing. He now comes into this with, number one, four years experience in office, four years having been able to think about it, assuming he wins, and as you said, a retributive mindset. How much more worried are you and should the rest of us be about his ability to execute on what you just laid out? I'm really quite worried. I mean, I think you've put it exactly right. He spent the first three and a half years of his office cycling through appointees, some of whom were not as loyal as he would like, um, figuring out what were the soft points, soft spots in the administrative state that he could then push on. 
Um, and he also didn't have um, uh, sort of outward, a lot of help on the outside. And all of that has changed. You see the Heritage Foundation rolling out well-designed plans to take on the administrative state and then vetting all kinds of people who might then serve as his, his, um, his deputies to unwind it. Um, he he will he's going to play from a kind of um, strength and organization that we didn't see should he should he win in the next election, um, and and the comfort that liberals took uh, in 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 the in in his in his first term that he was inept in playing golf all the time is not likely to characterize a second term um, at all, and this is going to have implications decidedly for for our, our democracy, but but also for for the health and well being of of our markets. I mean, when we think about what regulations do, some of it is about lifting up competing um, objectives like uh, a clean environment um, or or you know, or worker safety, um, but. Part of what also what regulations do is that they establish the preconditions for flourishing markets themselves. And, and, and what we, we have a lot of, of, of evidence that shows that when you politicize to great extent the federal bureaucracy, it doesn't perform its job as well. Its capacity is reduced. Its morale drops. The, the commitment of bureaucrats to do, to do good work declines. And, the, and therefore, what we can expect is that supportive work that the regulatory regime does in the service of uh, healthy, healthy um, free markets um, is, is likely to decline. I want to talk about a couple um, specific things that Trump has talked about changing or doing if he wins re-election. Uh, he's proposed an overhaul of the immigration system, including ending birthright citizenship, this idea that if you're born here in the United States, you're automatically a citizen. Um, uh, there's talk of camps being set up to to house migrants and, and people seeking asylum. Um, what would happen if he tries to roll out those kinds of policies uh, in a new administration? Well, um, right. This is not just a story. He's not picking up his story about how I got the wall started and now I'm, ju- I'm just going to extend it. And that's going to be the, the, the extent of my immigration um, policy going forward. He's now talking, as you say, about, about encampments and, and deporting millions of people from the country. Um, what can we expect? We can certainly expect all kinds of court challenges to begin. Um, and it'll be interesting to see the extent to which the federal judiciary that now has more, decidedly at the Supreme Court level, more conservatives in play who are going to look more kindly upon the exercises of his power um, than, than there were when he first assumed power in, in 2017. Um, it also will be profoundly disruptive to, again, I mean, what, the theme of your show is to thinking about markets and, and the health and well-being of our economy. The millions of people who are here who are undocumented aren't just lead, trying to lead independent lives. They are embedded in businesses and in families um, um, and, and engaged in all kinds of commerce that then will be, um, will be disrupted. And, and that will be another, yet another thing that we'll have to contend with. Interestingly, there's been this, um, you know, when looking back on his first term in office, there was a sense among conservatives, like just traditional conservatives. Well, I don't like the excesses of Trump, but we're going to get our lower taxes and our less regulation, and that's all to the good. When you have Trump talking about the kinds of immigration policy he wants to, to advance, it's not at all clear that those line up with the longstanding interests and policy commitments of the business community. And whether or not they then will see fit to, to push back will be something to watch. 
This is going to be a little sideways, but roll with me here, would you? Do you know who Brian yeah. Stelter is? No, talk. Okay, Brian no. Stelter is a is a media journalist. He reports on the media. He used to be at CNN for a while. Was at CNN for a long while. has a, has a very high profile as a a, a Trump critic, uh, we should say, and a critic of, of Fox News. He's just out with a brand new book about Fox News. I think the subtitle is Network of Lies, in which he expounds on the lying that Fox News has done on behalf of Donald Trump. I was listening to an interview with him the other day, in which I think. In an effort to sound hopeful at the end of it, he said, I don't believe most of the people who support Trump want what he espouses. They don't want authoritarianism. They don't want, I don't remember if he used the actual word fascism. They don't want what he represents. They just want um, somebody who's going to yell and scream and, and stand up for them. And I guess my question to you as, a, as an observer of the American political scene, as a guy whose who's, who's academic specialty this is, what do you think the people who support Donald Trump and his economic vision, but also his social and public policy vision, what do you think they want? It's a a terrific question. And I'm I'm torn on this one. I think on the one hand, we have a a lot of evidence that, um, that points to the American public, for the most part, being reasonably moderate, certainly reasonably moderate relative to the polarized um, parties that occupy Congress and, and, and the extremism we see um, on evidence there. Um, so the, the, the world in which the public might serve as a moderating force and, and, um, and, and, and not be cheering um, his authoritarian claims at every turn um, is, well, I actually think there's some evidence in support of that on the one hand. On the other hand, Trump is not being shy about at all about his authoritarian, authoritarian aspirations. Um, and, um, and he is out in front over the whole field of um, reasonably well-qualified and reasonably well-funded and organized um, Republican um, aspirants for, for the nomination. He's, he's just a mile ahead, and there's, and there's nothing that points to that diminishing, which, which suggests that it, for at least some core part of the Republican Party, they've come around to not just um, putting up with these populist sensibilities and these authoritarian claims, but they may even have an appetite for them. Which is so wild because when it comes to things like, you know, Obamacare, right, which a lot of Republicans use the expansions under Obamacare or, or rely on um, the, the health care changes that came as a result of the program. Granted, there are a lot of problems with the program still remaining, but um, Trump recently said he'd prioritize repealing and replacing Obamacare if he were reelected, which is unpopular even among Republicans, does this, you know, A, how feasible is that given what kind of political environment Trump would be going into if he were reelected? And does that create, does, does this issue, which is unpopular among Republicans, potentially create an opening for another GOP candidate? I'm not sure it creates an opening for another GOP candidate, but I think it certainly provides an opening for Biden um, and the Democrats who will then drive home that this guy who who you have greater faith as the steward of the domestic economy will, in fact, what he'll do is he'll, he'll, he'll wreck your, your health care um, uh, um, uh, support. Um, and and, and it, I actually have found his, you know, his recent claims to be reconsidering uh, his positions and his efforts to, you know, restart another assault on Obamacare politically curious because that's a domain where 
Uh, it plays to the Democrats' advantage. It is, as you point out, a, a popular issue, certainly among um, Democrats, among a fair number of Republicans, and among among independents as well. Um, and so why he would want to lead with that, as opposed to saying, I'm all in on immigration, uh, which for which he's, you know, he, he, he's enjoyed some political support on and decidedly by, you know, jumpstarting the economy um, and, and returning to, you know, the, the halcyon days of 2018, pre-pandemic, um, then that's, that's what I promise to deliver. Those, those strike me as at least more popular, popular messages and the ones that I think we can expect him, uh, tr- that's, that being Trump, um, to, be, to be playing up. Uh, last thing, Professor, and then and then we'll let you uh, get back to work. And I apologize if this sounds hyperbolic, but I don't think, uh, given the times and, and the last 10 minutes of this conversation, it actually is. Do you think the American economy and American-style capitalism, for all of its acknowledged flaws so stipulated, do you think it survives the second Trump administration? Um, I'm not hopeful. I'm not hopeful... Um, um, about the effect of a Trump administration on a, a domestic economy and decidedly uh, on the health and well-being of our democracy. The, neither of these things are light switches. It's not like live or die. Um, but I would expect our democracy to be substantially degraded um, and that the federal bureaucracy to become an instrument for uh, the political will of of uh, uh, a president with autocratic aspirations in order to not attend to the average well-being of citizens so much as to exact retribution and this isn't so much you know me interpreting it is just taking trump at his own at his own um at his own word yeah William Howell is a professor of American politics uh, at the University of Chicago. Um, professor, thanks for your time. I, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. D- depressing though it was. Yeah, thank you. Depressing though it was, I'm really glad that we had this yeah. conversation yeah. because, you know, it's easy to dismiss the things that Trump says as as rhetoric or, or hyperbolic or him being bombastic, yeah. but... He is in all likelihood at this point going to be the Republican nominee, which means that these policies he's talking about implementing are real policies mm-hmm. that could at least be attempted, if not necessarily done, if he builds up the administrative state around him in, in the way that he's talking about doing. And so I, I think it is valuable to deeply explore these things as if he means what he says. He clearly does. And I think we, we, everybody on the planet, but specifically Mm -hmm. uh, American journalists, should have learned this lesson the last time out. And we, we clearly didn't. And I worry that now we're coming around to the fact of it too late. I I mostly agree with you, except for when we were covering the the Trump administration in real time, a lot of the things that he said he did not actually mean or do. So the classic example I'm thinking of is, you know, the uh, expanding 
access to prescription drugs from Canada, something that was very popular with the American public. He said he was going to do it. He made a big announcement about it. And I remember calling HHS for months, like, hey, when is this going to happen? Hey, when are you all going to do it? And they just didn't. Just didn't. It was just a talking point because it was popular. And there's enough sprinklings of, of those sorts of things to be like, well, he doesn't always mean what he says. But the risk of ignoring the things that he says is is entirely too high, as you say. T- totally agree. But but let me just offer this counter and then we should probably move yeah. on. Um, uh, I think it's one thing uh, to to take him as unserious in some in some apologies for using this word nerdy wonky policy things right like fair, and and, fair. and 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 look prescription drug costs are real and I don't mean to you know pick on people who need those but that that's a that's mm-hmm. a policy prescription right as opposed right. to the things he says that are destructive to democracy, like the things you talked about, the camps right. a- and all of that, right? And so I think, fair, yeah, I, I grant your point on one and you grant my point on one and, and there we go. Anyway, yeah, that's, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, but we want to, yeah, we want to know what your points are on this. And I hope that uh, you all are also thinking deeply about it, even if it's not always the most fun to think about. Um, we want to hear from you. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. We are going to be right back with some other news. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. All right, here we go. News. Kimberly Adams, what do you got? Yes. So I'm very fascinated slash terrified by this news of a data breach at 23andMe. Mm. Um, have you s- seen this at all? I, not until you put it in the rundown. <laughs> okay. So genetic testing company 23andMe, which a lot of people use for family ancestry type stuff, um, or just to know maybe if you have any kind of predispositions for uh, genetic issues or whatever – Something that really didn't exist for most of my life and then came on the scene and then became extraordinarily popular and now it's kind of ubiquitous. So the company was hacked and has now admitted that the data of nearly 7 million people 
has, I'm going to quote here from, this is the Guardian story, but there's a bunch of places where this is being reported, um, has put the DNA ancestry information into the hands of hackers who broke into the site in early October. Um, on TechCrunch, which has a ton of information about this, the company says that the hackers were able to access um, a significant number of files containing profile informations information about user's ancestry. It also includes person's name, birth year, relationship labels, the percentage of DNA shared with relatives, ancestry reports, and self-reported location, right? So this is not like any, just like all the other hacks that we hear about, because this is effectively hacks of not just someone's private information, but their health data and their relationships. And in an era, and this was what a lot of people um, were highlighting in in commentary online, uh, when so there's so many race based and hate based mm-hmm. attacks. Um, this getting into the hands of the wrong people is is real bad news. Um, I don't know what the the news you can use in this is because it's not like, you know, when your credit number gets stolen or or you have, you know, your private accounts like the, you know, Equifax hack. Was it Equifax? Yeah, it was yeah. Equifax, I think. Um, that hack. And they're like, lock down your credit report and do this, that, and the other. I don't know what you do when your DNA information is stolen and marketed on the web. It's not great at all. Um, and who knows? I mean, what's to stop? I mean, the law, but in theory, an, an ill, an ill intended private company, like an insurance company could buy this data set and then feed it into an algorithm that, you know, sets pricing for things, you know, ideally not. But as we've had all these discussions about AI and what these AI data sets are built on, what's to stop someone from feeding this kind of information into it. So, you know, just something else to, to keep you happily awake at night. Have yeah, a great this, time with this, that information. This is an uplifting podcast today, isn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah, it's just great. Lord. All right, uh, <laughs> so, so here's mine. It's a little wonky, but uh, I'm using it to, to make a little bit of a point, which goes actually to some of the stuff we were talking about with uh, Professor Howell sort of tangentially. Anyway, Moody's came out today and said it is lowering the outlook for Chinese sovereign debt, which is to say it is worried that the Chinese government is piling on too much debt. It is maintaining its credit rating for now on Chinese debt, and credit rating affects how much you have to pay to borrow, basically. Um, But it is lowering the outlook to negative. That is to say, Moody's and uh, presumably some of the other big ratings agencies, although they haven't said it publicly, are looking at how much debt the Chinese government is piling on in response to some domestic issues over there, most most specifically the tanking of its property sector, and saying, whoa, China, hold on, that is a lot of debt. And if you keep going this way, we're going to lower your credit rating and it's going to cost you even more to borrow. So there's that. Yes, you were going to say. I heard the Well, when I was doing my story on gold prices yesterday and sort of what's feeding into it, I mean, there's only so much you can get into two minutes, but one of the things that several of the sources said is that fears of the slowing economy in China are really what's fueling the rise in gold prices. It's not so much Americans and and people in Western countries fleeing to gold. It's people in China and in India where they're is, according to the folks I talked to, a bit more cultural association of safety 
in mm-hmm. storing value in gold um, than even we have here in the United States, even though everybody seems to like to store value in gold, although according to some research, it doesn't actually serve as much of a hedge against inflation. Right. Learned that new yesterday. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, this this idea of what you're talking about, about China, is also contributing to that rise in gold prices. Interesting. Totally fascinating. That's that's actually yeah. really good to know. So the reason I mention it is because those of you who are astute listeners to Marketplace or observers of financial and economic news will remember that um, ratings agencies maybe a month ago came out and said basically the same thing about the American sovereign debt. Hmm. Here's the line item, though, that was not in the issue about China, and that is Moody's is specifically worried about the American political system and political dysfunction and our inability to manage our economy. <laughs> Sorry, I just want to make that point again. That's it. That's, I just want to say that. That's it. Just arg. Just arg. All right. Okay. That is yeah. it for our wonderful, uplifting news. Let us do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, so we talked last week about whether uh, the richer countries on this planet have an obligation to pay for the impacts of climate change, which are affecting, as we all know, uh, those lesser developed economies and those who are just simply physically, geographically in a worse place. We got this. Hello, Kai and Kimberly. My name is Ryan. I'm calling from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. While I do agree that the Global North has a duty and an obligation to contribute, it's always curious to me that the fossil fuel industry itself seems to escape these discussions, especially since they have systemically deceived our country and countries around the world to delay and deny climate action. Thank you for making me smart. Yeah, totally true. Can't argue with that for a second. Nope. That's yeah. Uh, yeah you yeah, said it totally. All right, one more. Spotify recently uh, dropped their annual Spotify Wrapped feature, where Spotify users can see a bunch of data on their listening habits and possibly recoil in horror. And we heard from a very dedicated Spotify user and make me smart listener. Taria here calling from Marietta, Georgia. So I did my Spotify rap this year and I am in the top 4% of Make Me Smart listeners with 2,789 wow. minutes. Thank you guys for always making me smart. That's that's a lot of minutes. That's like that. two solid days of, of listening to Make Me Smart. And no, I did not just do that math in my head. The producers told me. Wow. But that's really cool. Thank wow. you. Appreciate that's it. Cool. Yeah. There's some competition for the rest of y'all. <laughs> All right. Before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you are you were wrong about? This week's answer comes from Samantha Squalls, owner of a gift wrapping business called Paper Decor More in Los Angeles. Something I thought I knew but later found out I was wrong about was... Everybody does not know how to gift wrap. I assumed that starting a gift wrapping business, I would be able to find plenty of employees who knew how to gift wrap and it'd be easy. Unfortunately, that has not been my experience. 
I've had to do a lot of extra training and or just like find that one to two (laughs) great people that could do it with me or figure out another system in which somebody they're not necessarily gift wrapping, but they're just helping me package or get together the boxes and things like that. And then I'm doing the final steps. Oh, my God. Okay, (laughs) so two quick stories. Number one, I'm laughing because I am married to a woman who comes from a long line of just exquisite gift wrappers just wow. just the most beautiful packages are are in every occasion delivered it's just spectacular i for the life of me cannot wrap anything and this is funny because my first job after i got out of the foreign service in the navy and steph was at school in uh, getting her mba i had a job at borders books in palo alto california and one of the things you have to do when you work at a bookstore around the holidays which this was was you have to wrap the books when people come and say hey can you wrap this for me it was tragic <laughs> i literally had customers say you know what uh, i'll just do it i'll just do it i'll do it at home <laughs> anyway Earlier this year, I took a class. Uh, well, it, it was a sake tasting class, but also as part of it, there was a tenegui uh, demonstration, which is like you use this particular type of cloth that they, uh, it's, it's like traditional Japanese cloth that is used to wrap packages in actual cloth. So mm. you're learning to like twist and tuck and, and tie and to make it look really pretty. And I, I was able to accomplish this task under the very careful instruction of a wonderful um, woman who, you know, has been whose family, I guess, has been doing this for generations. And I felt so empowered. And I bought all of this Tenegui cloth. Uh-oh. And I was like, I can do this. <laughs> Have I done it ever again? No. Have I attempted it? Mm. Yes. Did I embarrass myself? Yes, I did. Uh. But I'm going to go back and look at the little pamphlet. I'm going to watch some videos. And who knows, maybe I will cloth wrap some of my Christmas gifts and feel very accomplished again. <laughs> Gift wrapping is hard, man. It's just hard. It we, is. we want to hear it your is. answer to the Make Me Smart question or whether or not you are a good gift wrapper. Take your pick. Tell us anything you want. Our phone yes. number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart, which is this podcast, is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by one Carlos Dorado in the small soundproof room across from me through the glass. <laughs> Brian Allison's going to mix it down later. Ben Talday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. The cloth is so pretty too. I, I can't quite. Like I also that. don't know. Yeah, I also don't know if I want to give it to anybody. Is the thing because <laughs> it's very pretty. <laughs> we all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine, I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist, and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.